Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. Welcome to Global Reboot. This week, we're looking at curbing climate change. I want to focus not on the science, but the economics of this challenge. The science is fairly clear, I think. We know climate change is happening. Technically, we also have the means, or at least an idea of the means, for how to fix it. The question is, do we have the money? The issue of money is all the more important today because it encompasses so many other complicated and interrelated problems. Who's going to pay for it? Why? What other priorities take a backseat because of that? What are the hurdles? And if the problem is so big and so existential, why can't we just print the money? It's an interesting time to ask these questions. Just last week, Democratic Senators Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin hammered out a compromise agreement that's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. There's a long way to go before it gets signed, but the proposal would include roughly $370 billion in much-needed energy and climate spending. The thing is, though, even that money is just a start, and that's only about the United States. The climate crisis is a global problem, and it's going to need bigger, more global solutions. What would all of that cost? I have the perfect guest for this. Adam Tooze is an FP columnist, a Columbia University professor, and the author of best-selling books such as Crash and Shutdown. Adam's working on a book about the finances behind mitigating climate change, so there's really no one better to speak to about this issue. Just a note that we taped this interview before the news about the Schumer Mansion deal was announced, but the broader takeaways from our conversation remain just as relevant, if not more so. Global Reboot, of course, is where we examine one big problem every week and look at ways to solve it. Our podcast is a partnership with Doha Forum. As always, leave us comments or feedback, rate the show. Let's get started. Adam, so climate change just seems like such an intractable, unsolvable problem. But let's try the following hypotheticals. One there is enough political will. So people want to fix the climate crisis. Two, we suddenly learn that we have unlimited funds of money, which must be a nice thing for an economist to imagine. But with those two hypotheticals, can we fix climate change? It's a great question, right? There's a benchmark to start with. I think the first crucial kind of point to make is there's damage that's already been done and that's in the works that it would be very difficult to reverse at this point unless we come up with some magical carbon sucking technology that can reduce the overall CO2 load in the environment. But failing that, we're already on course for very substantial climate change, which for the most vulnerable populations in the world is a serious risk. So fix, you know, if we mean by fix, can we stabilize in the 1.5 to 2 degree range or give ourselves a good chance of doing that? The answer is, I think... At this point, yes, in the sense that many of the technologies that we would need to do that are already available, road tested and out there. Right. The key is electrification. We need to complete the incomplete energy revolution of the 20th century, which kind of got stuck halfway through because we discovered hydrocarbons and they were so fantastic. But Mm. if we go back to the point where everything cooking, domestic heating, all transport, as far as we can conceive of doing it, is electrified. We can make a huge dent in this. On the other hand, we're also not spending significant amounts of money on R&D. It's it's crazy. I have this 
pet food test, which is $35 billion, which is what American households spend on dog and cat food and <laughs> treats currently. And we underspend that globally in energy research. We spend less globally on energy research wow. than American households do on, on dogs and cats. We're not going to blame this on pets, are you? No, no, I love pets. I'm, I'm totally, I'm just saying, look, if I cared about <laughs> this as much as I cared about my dog, we'd be spending more globally. So I think as a technological optimist, you'd say, you know, there's things we just don't know what our opportunities are. And then there's the tough stuff, which is about consumer habits, which isn't just trivial liberal do-gooding, like the addiction of large numbers of consumers to heavy meat eating and dairy consumption shows up at the global level. This is a real issue, which at some point will have to be addressed, either through rather a radical change in the food supply chain or in carbon capture and sequestration, because there's no other way of doing it, right? Those cows, they are massive methane producers, and methane is even more dangerous than CO2. So those are the pieces of the puzzle, and we can see what they are. It's conceivable that we could come up with solutions for all of them with the right political will and with the right amount of money. We could we could do this. Okay, so what is the ingredient that's missing then? How much of this is political will and how much of it is money? Everything is missing right now. So we don't have some of the key technologies because we haven't invested enough in R&D. We have been talking about this problem since the late 1980s and progress. There has been progress in the advanced economies, but but nowhere near rapidly enough. And generally speaking, not because we were pursuing climate goals, but because, you know, oil and gas got expensive. And then finally, um, there is the question of investment, because making this transition will require investment. I'm, I'm kind of leery about talking about it as cost, right? Because this money, we're not spending it on Mars, we're spending it down here. So we have to distinguish very carefully between the bits of expenditure which are genuinely costly in the sense that we are choosing to do something less efficiently. And there's a mm. portion of this investment which is costly in that sense. It will still generate jobs for the people who receive the payments, but on net, it's inefficient. And say, for sake of argument, about half of what we would have to spend falls into that category. The other half, I think, is really quite, it's quite wrong to think of it as a cost. It's actually a massive job creation program to create a better world. And on balance, almost all of the assessments of, 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 of labor, of, of work, show that the net zero transition is net positive for jobs. It involves some churn of jobs, but it's net positive. And when you set against all of this, this whole cost calculation, the harm that we're averting by doing this, you know, the whole thing just tips very rapidly. Mm. The real question, a bit like with the global vaccinations, is why on earth we aren't doing it with maximum urgency, because this is trillions of dollars lying on the sidewalk that we should be able to pick up. And that's where the politics comes in. There just isn't the will to concert, to organize, to break the resistance, to build the coalitions. And even in Europe, which is the most advanced in this, it is leaden, the progress. I was going to ask you about the vaccinations, because I, I think that's the best recent example of a clear problem with a potentially clear solution. There was even a sum of money that the IMF said could fix the problem, $50 billion to vaccinate the world. But even with that very clear mandate, the world largely failed, 3 billion plus unvaccinated still. And so I guess what I want to ask you then is explain how this works in the world of money, because on the one hand, we've seen rich countries throw tons of money at big domestic problems, whether it was the financial crisis or in the United States with the stimulus that was passed to resuscitate the economy, prevent people from losing incomes. 
you then get the sense that one can just print money. Why then is it so hard to conjure up money for climate change, which as we know is this big, immediate, and existential crisis, but no one sees it as such? It's difficult to not to see it as a profoundly depressing demonstration of our inability for collective action. It is staggering that the will wasn't there. And I do think it's a matter of political will to boss basically Moderna and Pfizer into ramping up production. I mean, they will say it would have been difficult, but we just didn't try. Mm. And again, it's just win, win, win. These are great jobs. This is great investment. These are great capacities. And every single calculation of the cost benefit tells you the rate of return is staggeringly good. And it does contrast very starkly with other moments in which we have reacted, as you say, with huge force financially to the 2008 financial crisis. And then again in 2020, when the markets were so rocky, it's very important to distinguish two different types of spending money, you know, printing checks. Like one is what the central banks did both in 2008 and 2020 to stabilize financial markets. They can do it as quickly as they can on the scale they can without congressional approval, because basically they are balancing liabilities and assets. They are creating money in the sense they're creating liquidity, but what they're doing is taking assets which are illiquid at the moment, mortgage-backed securities that no one wants, and giving people ready cash for them. Notionally, and over the long term, the vast majority of those mortgage-backed securities were good. You got paid back. This wasn't you know, just simply creating money out of, you know, out of thin air. You, you turned an illiquid asset into a liquid asset, and that's what financial markets do all the time. But it isn't the political allocation of resource in the way that fiscal policy is. And what was really striking about 2020 is that we did all the monetary policy side and then everywhere practically in the world, we also did the fiscal policy push. And it was big. That is really the analogue. In other words, appropriating funds, running up debts, making political decisions to spend money. And then as soon as you do that, you can see why you don't do it all the time on a gigantic scale, because that then exposes the fundamentally political nature of the budget balance. And that is also the short answer to why we don't do this for climate, because mm. changing the structure of our energy economy goes to the heart of power. And so far, and this is the crucial balance, right? When you think about social change, it doesn't have to involve everyone, but what you need is a sufficiently large coalition of people who think they're going to win, who can overcome the resistance of people who think they're going to lose and drag often the majority of folks who kind of can't decide one way or another along with them. The coalitions of winners have so far not been as powerful as the coalitions of people who imagine themselves as losers. And in Europe, this is the fundamental difference between the US and in, in, in Europe. Mm. In, in Europe now, I think we are overwhelmingly in a space where the coalition of people who imagine themselves as winners is is much larger than the retarding minority that sees themselves as manifest losers. This balance is incredibly difficult to strike. When the power balance shifts, it sure as hell will get done mm. because powerful people with real interest in this transition will start mobilizing resources to, to shift the envelope. So I want to get eventually to how we change this dynamic, Adam. But before we do that, a question on core economics. Is it just rich countries that can raise money, take on debt and solve big problems? Or is that an option available to developing countries as well? Like, how does that work? I mean, you can almost define rich and poor in terms of their access to credit. It's very much like people's own domestic economies, right? If you're wealthy and you've got a lot of assets, it's very easy to borrow money. And if you don't, it's very difficult to borrow money. Mm. So that is how the world works as well. And that is a 
fundamental problem because one of the things that we have to adjust our mindset about is that you know the climate problem emerged in the 1970s and 1980s as a rich country problem diagnosed by rich country scientists um, as a, a criticism of rich countries for uh, consuming far too much energy and other consumer goods in a world which was at the time massively polarized mm. right you know china has 2% of global gdp in 1989 india has an even smaller fraction the vast majority of chinese get around on bicycles in the 1980s right that was the world in which the climate problem emerged mm. in the 80s and was turned into global politics in the 1990s that is not our reality anymore right china emits more co2 than all of the rich countries put together. And this is no longer a matter of having just more population, because if you add up the G7 population, it's roughly equivalent to China's. Um, it's, um, it's the fact that China's emissions per capita are now on the yeah. same level as those of, of the rich countries on average, not as much as America, but more than France, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, so this is the world that we're in. The, the climate problem is not going to be solved anymore by you know, rich, privileged Americans waking up, smelling the coffee and deciding to do the right thing. That, that they certainly need to do that. But the idea that essentially the answer to this problem lies in their hands is, is to miss the trajectory of global development. Middle income countries, of which China is the most significant, India the next, but then you're talking Indonesia's, Pakistan's. Um, you know, the, the, the major, the big Turkey, Egypt, the big players of the emerging market world, they're where we're seeing the most rapid growth in emissions right now from lower levels and lower per capita levels. But if the aim of the game is to get to net zero by 2050 or 2060 or 2070, see, they are the people who have to make the really painful strategic adjustments. And for that, they need credit. Right. And not all of them might be able to raise it. So just to Absolutely. take, you know, a few examples, say of countries with more than 150 million people, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Indonesia, Nigeria, what happens to all of them if it's that hard for them to raise capital, um, you know, uh, the way, say, it wouldn't be for China? But many of these have now also graduated mm -hmm. into the league solid middle income countries. That's another adjustment we have to make, right? This first world, third world, north, south divisions are pretty bad ways of, of understanding the world in its right. current state. So that's the upside, right? These are much more competent players than they would have been. Bangladesh is an incredible story over the last 20, mm -hmm. 30 years. People don't die from typhoons in the way they used to in Bangladesh because it has an incredible early warning system that allows them to manage the risks. But yes, they need credit. In good times, they can get credit. The real question is, can it be provided in a stable basis and on terms which are viable over the long run? And for some of these projects, it is quite clear that the rate of return is going to be below market. So there has got to be some element of subsidy. Mm. Down the line, we can tell all sorts of very happy stories about technological learning curves. You know, And when we start adopting solar and wind in bulk, we're going to get incredible effects from this. The sophistication of, of network management, of grid management is going to get better and better. And better. all of this, this is all going to happen. But in the first phase, there is going to need to be an element of subsidy. And um, that will have to come from somewhere and it will have to come from outside the low income and emerging market world. Mm. And so that's why you have the pledge, uh, the COP pledge of, you know, $100 billion a year that would be provided by uh, the public sector from governments around the world. Yeah, but that's a hangover from a painful set of deals. It's part of the bait with which the rich countries in the end persuaded lower income and middle income countries to actually join in a collective deal. But it's peanuts and everyone right. knows it. And then that's the good news. The bad news is we actually need somewhere between two and four trillion dollars a year in investment incrementally on top of what we're already currently doing.
And then we need to reshuffle quite a lot of the energy investment we currently do out of the dirty things it's in and into green. So in total, we're looking at an investment volume existing, reshuffled and incrementally on top of in the order of these numbers are vague and they depend on the model you use. But, you know, four to five trillion dollars per year gets you into the right ballpark. We currently spend about two trillion dollars a year on energy investment globally in the broadest sense of the word. Mm. So that's happening in the rapidly developing emerging market economies. That's the scale. That's staggering. And you know that's not coming. You know, somewhere between two and five trillion dollars a year is not coming from the American public budget or, he says, from the Chinese one either. And on the other hand, we're really asking for, and what's what we're saying is that an investment in on the scale of two to say five percent of global GDP would set us in motion in the right direction. We would then have to solve all the technological, social, and political issues, but that would give us the volume. And as a benchmark, that is what low-income countries currently spend on things like health or education. America spends five times that much on health currently as a share of American GDP. It's the ballpark of the Pentagon budget Mm. extrapolated out to the entire world. So it's a lot of money, but is it unmanageable? Absolutely not. We're talking about a program like that. Think 50s, 60s, Cold War era. Not People talk about World War II sometimes. It's very misleading because World War II was 30 to 50% of GDP for five years. We're not talking about a massive sprint. We're talking about a long haul at a distinctly manageable level, especially when you factor in all of the positive spin-offs that will come from it. But we have to make that step. And that's that's the problem. So since this is a show called Global Reboot, let me put you on the spot, Adam. What would it take to get us to what you're describing? Public and private sector, rich and poor, investing those sums of money how does it happen? Well, the, the, as far as we know, there are only two routes. And this is, you know, this is where your politics then immediately shows through. And my left progressive friends talk about the big green state as the vehicle for doing this. And three to five percent of GDP is, you know, kind of New Deal, that kind of level. Mm-hmm. And no one should say that's poo-poo, totally impossible. It's totally viable, right? It's like building a Pentagon-style energy transformation bureaucracy in the United States with everything that entails. So it's big. It's happened before in history, however, and we did it for purposes of military and national security. Why shouldn't we do it for, you know, energy transition? I get it. I think it's a viable, I think it's a viable argument. I think it's also just politically totally non-feasible. So what is being discussed and um, is public-private partnership of various types. And basically it's some sort of structure where you use billions of dollars to leverage trillions of dollars. And the billions into trillions move is to say, use a limited um, cushion of public money to absorb the first loss, to take, as it were, the most extreme risks out of infrastructure development in West Africa, for instance, in Nigeria or Ghana, whatever. And on that basis, then turn the rest of the project into something that private finance can cover. So it's a little bit like the financial engineering that was done before 2008. You slice and dice the project. You Mm -hmm. take a bunch of bad mortgages, you stick them all in together. You say the first lot of risks will be absorbed by, in this case, the government, and the rest of you can then invest in a whole spectrum of options. 
And Except this is for a good cause. This is for a good cause, but but I mean, and this argument, this case is being made entirely shamelessly by players like BlackRock. So Larry Fink of BlackRock has repeatedly, since last year, has been campaigning on this agenda. He wants the IMF and the World Bank to be repurposed, not as institutions that lend to governments, government to government, classic restructuring programs, but global agencies of de-risking. So we will put a trillion dollars in shared between all the rich countries, and that will then leverage $10 trillion of private investment by this first loss absorption mechanism. Sounds great until you sit back and think about its politics and say, well, Larry, I think what you're saying to me is you want to privatize the benefits and what's the word? Socialize the costs of this this enterprise. (laughs) It's like, yep, (laughs) that's my offer. If you do that, I can find the trillions. Um, And of course, it's politically toxic, isn't it? The question is, how do we arrive at a mechanism for making this less toxic? So how do we create mechanisms of transparency, uh, of risk sharing? How do we ensure that this balance between the public purse and private is equitable? How do we ensure, for instance, that public pension funds are uh, are participating in the profits, not just in the risk? Right. Um, It's a huge calculus that we're going to have to engage in if we are not going to go down the other route, which in many ways is much cleaner, which is to say, you know what, this is a collective risk. We'll do it by way of the government. Tax is the way in which we distribute the cost. Benefit comes collectively to us as citizens. If that is not an option, big green government with the big green state is not an option, then this other murky thing looks like the only game in town. And so then the questions are political and they're very real. And so those need to be tackled head on. The real knock on this blended finance public-private partnership thing is we've actually been talking about this now for almost 20 years. It's been an idea that's been around since the late 1990s. And we've got precious little to show for it. Right. And, And so what you're suggesting then is why not just go ahead and try this? Uh, well, where we have been, it's been out there. We can't say it's not been tried. Clearly, we need to try it with more energy, with more political commitment on a larger scale. And if we're going to do all of that, then clearly democracy needs to hedge its risks because we don't want to be sitting in a situation five to 10 years from now where we have a kind of mega gilet jaune outburst because what we did was to backstop Larry Fink whilst he went and built a bunch of you know, ridiculously unproductive or inefficient solar panels in the Sahara somewhere or something, right? I mean, we need this to work politically. Um, It's not just a technocratic problem. We need to take the political issues, securing the the legitimacy of this bargain deadly seriously. Because we have a legitimacy model for the big government thing. We have a legitimacy model for the big government vision it's just contested, but its project is clear. What the legitimacy model for public-private partnership on this scale is, I don't think we really got a good answer for that. Mm. And, and, and yet, as far as we have a vision, that's the only vision that we have. Adam, what areas of financing for climate change mitigation give you hope these days? <laughs> <laughs> Well, a few years back, we published an article in Foreign Policy on green central banking. I remember this. And it was a scandal at the time. It was it was outrageous. I got, it got called out by none other, none other than Jens Weidmann, the then head of the German Bundesbank, who cited this article that we did, you know, as, a, as this kind of this irrational, um, crazy green visions of what central banks should do. 
And the conversation has moved a very long way since then. Weidmann's out of a job. Christine Lagarde kind of adopted green politics as a mission for the ECB. It's not moving in the same way at the Fed. It can't move in the same way at the Fed because the politics in the US are very different. But the conversation is nevertheless moving across Wall Street, across big money. They know they need to be in this game. Now, that's not a very powerful answer, really, because it's a matter of sentiment and good intentions and visions rather than realizations. So the thing that actually gives me hope in the climate space is, and again, it's a kind of an unfashionable pick, but it is, in fact, the European carbon pricing mechanism, Hmm. because Europeans on American advice, with the help of American NGOs, environmental defense funds, the, you know, big green, uh, America's, America's one of the most powerful environmental lobbies, very centrist, introduced this pricing mechanism. And for a long time, it was a joke. It was introduced in 2005. It was basically a set of giveaways, actually, for, for industry. Um, but now it's beginning to bite. And um, that's, that's really good news. Because what that does is it moves us from the realm of good intentions to the realm of very serious constraints and incentives. Because if you are you know, in the business of generating power through coal, which some people in Europe still are, the price you're paying to do that right now is exorbitant. And it's not for nothing that we've seen a shift, for instance, on the part of the Polish government, which for a long time was a holdout on coal, because coal for them is a matter of like a badge of national identity. Um, and they've now shifted. It's also the fact that the economics are just terrible for that sector. So to my mind, it's a demonstration. And that that gives me hope that some elements of this mechanism may work. Finance by itself, when it's, as it were, a magic wand that high-principled and far-sighted technocrats wave, I don't trust as much as when it's motivated by serious market pressure. Because that's, you know, that's when that's when I think on its own terms we should start to take it seriously. Well, I I really wanted to end on an optimistic note, so I think that's where we'll have to close. Adam Tews, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And that was Adam Tews, a Columbia University professor, a columnist at Foreign Policy, as well as co-host of our hit podcast, Ones and Twos. He's currently working on a history of the climate crisis. Next week, the state of democracies around the world. To remind us how important democracy is and how fragile it is and how we should not take it for granted. And we've been so disillusioned, myself included, with uh, the way our democracies function that maybe we got a little spoiled. And all of a sudden you realize, well, this can be taken away very quickly. That's Elaine Landemore, a Yale University professor and the author of Open Democracy. More than anyone else I know, she has been thinking long and hard about how to reboot democracies and governance. Her ideas are radical, honest, even inspiring. And you won't want to miss what she has to say. That is next week on Global Reboot. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners can save 15% on their first month or year of FP access. Visit foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Enter the code REBOOT at checkout to claim that offer. Thanks for listening. I'm Ravi Agrawal. See you next week.